Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 184. This week, we talk with Dan Roth and Steve Sanderson about Blazor, a way to run .NET in the browser using WebAssembly. GitHub was hit with the biggest DDoS ever recorded. And Bill Gates weighs in on the tabs versus spaces debate. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Check it out today at raygun.com. This week, we have Daniel Roth, Program Manager on the ASP.NET team, and we have Steve Sanderson, a developer on the ASP.NET team. How's it going, guys? It's going great. Great. Good to be here. Yeah, I was uh, I was talking to some people at the MVP Summit uh, the other week, and they actually, they had just come out of your session, and they were like freaking out. <laughs> they were so excited. And I'm like, we're going to have that on the MS Dev Show. So they were, yeah. So it's it's super awesome stuff. So we'll get to that very shortly. Uh, but first, we got the comment of the week. What is the comment of the week, Carl? This week, we grabbed the comment of the week off of iTunes. You and just want to summarize Ar- it, Carl? I know it's pretty long. Yes, it's, it's by Arvix. It says, awesome, period. So <laughs> there it is, verbatim. <laughs> I didn't want uh, to read the whole thing. <laughs> uh, if you want to get mentioned on the show like Arvix, uh, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com, comment on Facebook, YouTube, or Stitcher. And we really like these five-star iTunes re- reviews well as well. They really help uh, get the podcast up there and uh, noticed by people. Yeah, and people have been really great with that. I've been seeing lots of those pour in. So thank you so much. Okay, so let's jump in the news because we got a couple pretty cool stories. So the first one is an annual tradition for us, which is going through the Stack Overflow developer survey results for 2018. And I don't know if there was anything in particular that uh, that you wanted to call out here, Carl. So, you know, we've done like a bunch of these topics, uh, you know, from these reviews in the past. And, and, you know, I wanted to just pull like two different things out of there than what we normally do. The first one is one that I think pretty much everybody on Twitter definitely noticed is the diversity on Stack Overflow is nowhere even close to where the industry's at. Yeah, it's terrible. Much, much, yeah. much, much less where you know it should be. Um, so, yeah, diversity at least on people who take the survey at Stack Overflow is is I think it was under ten percent female. So um, obviously, is, they is, is, there, is some... there any guesses as to why? I mean, I mean, because it's it's just like you know, if you do a survey of people who like to take surveys, it's like a hundred percent, right? So yeah, I mean, is it is it something as as silly as you know they don't want to take the survey or? You know, I, I'm just curious. Yeah, I'm, I'm not exactly certain, but uh, I, I did just recently listen to the Stack Overflow podcast with John Skeeton, and he um, is a very big advocate for diversity. And he had talked up uh, several issues that Stack Overflow in general has um, with diversity. Hmm. Not that he's had any solutions, but, you know, it's, it's definitely something that uh, – they are not reflecting even what the developer population is. Yeah. And they're not controlling too, like what Google is showing and Bing and, and you know, is, is actually showing results, you know, who is showing the results to, right? I would mm-hmm. expect there to be like equal representation there. So I wonder if it's just, if it's mostly around the survey where there's a bigger difference. So I, I was hoping we had answers, but it sounds like we don't. No, <laughs> we have more questions, but yep. the other one that I think is, is really interesting that I pulled out of here is, um, you know, in, in the last year, we've heard a ton from Microsoft and Google and, 
basically every big tech company about AI and artificial intelligence and machine learning and all that fun stuff. And sometimes you wonder, you know, is this just the next, bu- you know, buzzword? Is it the next, you know, IoT blockchain kind of thing? And uh, what the interesting thing is, um, both Python and R moved way up on the charts yeah. on Stack Overflow questions. So that really seems to confirm that you know people you know aren't just curious about it; they're kind of digging into it and and playing with it in meaningful ways. Yeah, Python was the fastest growing language, which is pretty wild. And Especially considering that it's not a new language. You know, right. normally that's reserved for the new languages. Yeah, it's pretty ancient actually. <laughs> and then. Um, I mean, JavaScript is just like king on Stack Overflow uh, by such a huge margin uh, because it's JavaScript. And then it's funny because they're not even really like programming languages, but it goes JavaScript. Then it's HTML, CSS, what you'd expect, SQL, um, which is actually a little surprising considering JavaScript is the first one. You know, like I would expect SQL mm-hmm. to be high, but then I would expect C Sharp to be high as well. And that, since C Sharp is low, I would sort of expect SQL to be lower, um, although it just does say SQL. And then there's Java, and then there's Bash, which is kind of interesting, and then Python, and then C Sharp, uh, which is which is interesting to me. So yeah, JavaScript is still still king um, from a Stack Overflow perspective. There were some other things that uh, oh you know what under databases, uh, MySQL and SQL Server are are pretty darn close, and they're both at the top of the list. So it could be MySQL with uh, with SQL. I think there's a sort of a smoothing effect that occurs also because there's so much more choice now with all the languages. Yeah. The percentages all sort of kind of drop. Uh, oh, yeah. Of- I mean, there's definitely a long tail. I mean, as far as databases, like I didn't know this many databases existed, um, which is actually pretty crazy because if I look at like the lowest one on here at 1.7%, it's Apache HBase, which I, you know, I know of. Like it's not like some unknown thing. And then there's like Google BigQuery. This is like reading from the bottom up. Apache Hive, Amazon Redshift. Um, it's pretty wild, but coming down from the top, yeah, MySQL, SQL Server, PostgreSQL, uh, MongoDB, yeah, with actually pretty impressive. In fact, okay, I'm really confused now because this adds up to way, be way more than 100%. <laughs> Multiple selections. People can choose more than one database. Yeah. Okay, I guess. I mean, but like, it's like, this is like 400%. <laughs> so, I mean, if everybody's using four, I don't know. That's really strange. Uh, platforms, uh, again, their numbers are so skewed. I wish we had like a, a better representation, but Linux is 48%. I'm guessing that's because of the, a lot of server side stuff. Uh, and then number two is windows and then see, then Android shows up too. Um, so does Android also count as Linux? I don't know. Um, anything else you wanted to call out here, Carl? Those were the top two things that I wanted to look at. And yeah. of course we'll have the link to it in our show notes. So, yeah. um, the only Go the click only, on the link. Yeah, the other thing, the only other thing I wanted to call it was the experience. Um, here we go. Over half of respondents have five years of professional coding experience or less. And this is something we've talked about where, you know, every time we 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 think that we have to, you know, like at conferences or on the podcast, we have to talk about these like super advanced techie things. Um, and then we find out it's not the case because the reality is like half of our industry is, is, you know, almost brand new <laughs> and they're just trying yep. to learn some of the basics. You know, we just, we can never forget that cause it's growing so fast. So I did just want to call it to that. Okay. So let's move on. GitHub was hit with the largest DDoS ever recorded. Yeah. yeah so, uh, at the end of February, uh, GitHub uh, had a recorded uh, DDoS attack at 1.35 terabytes per second. 
So uh, that's a, a a lot of data. And yeah. with the amplification attacks that there are, it doesn't take much to do that nowadays. Oh, nice. Their page is like has autoplay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to close that. So anyway, um, I, I'm going to have to do this from memory then. <laughs> but one interesting thing in the article, so it was talking about, uh, it was Memcache. It was, yep. uh, you can, apparently they have like a, res, uh, they have a, um, a mechanism by which you can make the request and then it will actually uh, basically do like a webhook type of thing or it'll call back to your to, to your yourself. And uh, basically what they do is they were spoofing uh, the source IP to be GitHub's and then they would um, they would put something huge in the cache and then they would say, hey, can you just give me that item real quick? And then it would go to GitHub and they had a it was a 10,000 X multiplication factor. So basically, you know, with with that kind of amplification factor, I mean, you could use one yeah. computer. Actually, it's saying 51,000x amplification. Oh, 51,000x, yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> even with like one computer, you could DDoS some, somebody at this scale, which is uh, which is scary. Why would someone yeah. do that? Who are these people? Who hates GitHub? Why are they so mean? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> especially the GitHub. Like, hate the community? Yeah. Is that the guys from... Is yeah. it the guys from GitLab or something? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bitbucket or something. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Okay. So, uh, and then self-driving Uber car kills Arizona pedestrians. So this actually just happened or this came out just, uh, this story came out a couple hours ago and, um, you know, I feel obviously bad for, for the person who was hit here. And, uh, I don't know. I'm just, I, this is just more, more, I, I am, I am very, uh, I don't know what how you how you would say it. I am I am pessimistic in in regards to self-driving cars more so than most people in the industry. And I know this is just one. This is like, you know, this is obviously this might even still the self-driving cars might still be better than humans. Like people were trying to figure out statistics, but there's no you can't really do a comparison at this point because of the lack of data. But um I just don't I don't think it's we're ready especially for like three different companies who really aren't working together to start writing software that I, we know has bugs. I mean, I mean, they can't get the most basic software running and now they, they, they think that all this other stuff, I don't know. I, I'm just, I'm so pessimistic on this. I'm sorry. I, I have exactly the opposite perspective. Yeah. And I, I figured I, most people do. <laughs> I am just, yeah, yeah, you're an outlier on the car thing, Jason. Yeah. But, like, like like just consider for a second, like all those people that you probably know, some of them who are, who you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that person is behind the wheel of a car, like or you maybe you've oh driven I agree, with some I agree. Like oh, this person's trying to kill me in this car. Oh, like I wouldn't know. it be nicer if there was a piece of software you could trust that would just drive you safely? Well, to be clear, I think super fast. I believe that we'll get there. What I'm what here? So just to kind of drill down on what I'm pessimistic on. It's the short term viability of this. I I don't think they have it figured out. I mean it it's just like you know they have they've 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 tested a million miles. They haven't they haven't tested those in the edge cases. I mean they pick like all of the best scenarios to actually do this in. In fact if you look at what happened in this case, the car it looks like it it says pedestrian, but it it sounds like and I the facts are not, you know, well, well, I'm sure we'll hear more in the coming days, but what it looks like is it actually hit somebody that was on a bike. And if you look, there's a, if you go look at Google maps and actually look at the intersection, I had to look at it for a while. I'm sitting there like looking around. It's confusing as hell, you know, and I'm a human, like, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I understand like ultimately the computer will be able to figure out quicker than I will, 
guess what? It can't today, right? Like it sees that and it's just like, what is going on? Because it's basically <laughs> there's a car lane and then the right turn lane has to pass over the bike lane. And sure, I mean, the car should have all these sensors and it, it shouldn't hit, you know, somebody who's on a bike or whatever. Like that seems kind of silly. And again, it will get there. Like they will be a thousand times better uh, drivers than humans. But right now, I mean, they, they, the fact that you can write X amount of software, I don't know how many lines of code it is, right? Or, you know, it's, it's, they, they write the software and then they're just like, oh, ship it and we'll test it in production <laughs> with people's lives. Like that, that whole thing just seems, it just seems crazy to me. And, uh, I don't know. I'm just thinking, you know, like in, if, if you've ever think of, just do this, do this mental exercise. Now, over the next couple of weeks, when you were driving, and you see, just look for like edge case scenarios, you know, when somebody does something crazy <laughs> or you just see like an intersection where you're, you know, you get to it and you're like, what am I supposed to do? I mean, there are literally intersections where it is not clear, period. Like, like, you know, you can have a committee of a hundred people and you have mm-hmm. this intersection and based on the signs that are there, it is not clear what you were supposed to do. And what do yeah. we do? We like, you kind of come up and you're like, uh, it sort of looks safe. Right. And there is a way to solve that. And the computers will do that. But like, what does the computer do today? I mean, have they, have they really, do you think they've really written the code to like make that decision in, in that case where even right now we can't understand it? Yeah. So I, I think the interesting thing that, you know, I want to look at with this, you know, article is the reactionary, you know, responses of the industry and of the lawmakers. Yeah. Because, be you know, because, you know, at, at least in the United States, we do respond to s- incidents like these in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they're not e- exactly what you'd expect. So it'd be inter- I'm going to find it interesting to see exactly what the outcome of uh, this lady's death will have on the future yeah. of this technology. Um, but, yeah. you know, you, you were talking about all the edge cases. You know, sometimes there's just, you know, obvious scenarios that, you, you know, when you get have computers run across them if you have a four-way stop and you have four cars get there at precisely the same time you know nobody and everybody has the right of way so obviously mm-hmm. humans you know somebody's going to be a little bit more aggressive and somebody's just going to yeah. take the right way but you know are you going to have like you know like some sort of short range networking where the computers can you know right you know actually you there's know, there's a whole bunch of interesting aspects to that because first of all if all cars go at the same time they actually won't hit each other that's the interesting thing about a four-way yeah. stop by the way uh because and, and that might be the way it's solved yeah yeah i mean also i mean eventually yes that will be the perfect actually none of them will stop i mean why would you even have a four-way stop it doesn't make any sense you just you just adjust the timing so i know that that's the the world that we're that we're trying to get to but i don't know let's say um, oh, here, let me give you an example. Right by my house, there's a, uh, uh, there's a road that goes to the grocery store. Somebody hit the sign and the sign is laying beside the road. <laughs> now I've been there before. I know that I have to stop there. A, a, a self-driving car, like, is it going to remember that that used to be a stop? And then it also is going to be like, Hey, you know, the other day I saw the stop sign laying on the ground and now it's gone. But I know that I should still stop here because this intersection is bad up here, you know, and and maybe there'll be like super radar where it can see like, you know, OK, here's the speed of this vehicle and keep me safe. They just don't have that today. Like you can't tell me like, do you I mean, would you guys, you know, do you, do you Dan, do you have kids? I do have kids. OK, would you would you put your kids in there by themselves and and take them to that intersection I'm talking about where there's where the stop sign was hit by a car? It's gone. And tell the car like, yep, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, would you do that today? 
I, I, I so I mean, today this <laughs> self-driving tech is is pretty early. I, I will I will give you that. I'm just that's, saying that it's that's all right that's now. all I'm saying. That, honestly, yeah. that's all I'm saying. But I believe that not like if it's not already now, very soon that mm-hmm. car will get to that intersection, and even though there's not a stop sign there, it'll be able to react to any situation in that intersection so much faster than a human driver could do that you will prefer. Ten times out of out of out of ten to have the car driving the yep. the, the, the the car driving itself and you driving yep. the car. So I think about two years ago I said we were about a decade out. So I think we're about eight years out is my current prediction. So were you going to say something, Steve? Yeah, I wonder if there's going to be a little phase when, say, two thirds of the cars on the road are self driving and one third are not, and then the people who are driving their own cars manually will have a huge advantage because they can just drive straight through stop signs or anything else, and they yeah. know that all the other cars are going to stop for that. And <laughs> that's all. That's already the case, actually. So that's already yeah. been that's already been happening. So in areas where they're testing the self driving car, if you see one, pedestrians are actually just ignoring them and walking out in front of them because they know they'll stop. Um, and that causes a major issue because then in a big city, I mean, it already happens like in big cities a little bit, right? Like, especially if, if, uh, let's say the, the crosswalk turns red and there's already like a line of people and it just keeps going. Like the, the, the chain is already started. Like people will just be like, Oh, I'm just going to keep going here. Um, and kind of break the rules. But if everybody knows that they're self-driving cars, you can just walk out in front of them and they'll just, they'll just slam on the brakes and then you can get across. So that's going to be a problem. I don't know how you solve that one. But even, even when you have a passenger in there, like hopefully social norms will kick in there and someone will be like, if I step in front of this car, there's a person in that car who's riding and is going to be pretty ticked off at me for doing that. He's probably going to scream out the window at me for doing that. So, you know, there's, there's, there's social norms that I think will help so, out there. So well. do me a favor, go to YouTube and type in road rage and, uh, and then we'll, <laughs> then we'll talk tomorrow <laughs> yeah. at least the person with the road rage is doesn't have the wheel <laughs> yeah that's true it's true they all they can do is yell at each other and it's like let me out of the car let me out of let, the, the car car's like hold, yeah nope. it's like sorry no. sir you need to calm down first yeah your, your heart rate needs to needs to get back to normal levels before i'll let you out that's actually kind of interesting i bet you there's i anyway we won't go down that tangent we should move on uh but but you know to your point carl i i think that's that's the biggest takeaway is is like what is this going to mean? I mean, this is going to be like the the thing that is referenced now in all of the arguments going forward. Yep. So, and and honestly, like I, it's to me that's a little depressing because I do I do think the tech is it's going to make absolute sense at some point in the future, eight years from now, <laughs> and um and I I would hate for that to be held back, um, you know, because it's it's a numbers game, so. Okay, so our last news story was actually from Bill Gates commenting on Reddit. Somebody asked him, tabs or spaces? <laughs> well, they just asked in general, not even him. No, no, it was him. It was, in oh, was, the, it, it, it was oh, on oh, his was AMA. His... Yeah, yeah, I grabbed, okay. I, I grabbed the screenshot. It was in his, his Ask Me Anything. Okay. So his response verbatim was, when I code, I use tabs because you want the columns to line up. For some Word documents, I use tabs. You want things to adjust when you go back and edit them, and tabs help. <laughs> um, yeah, so. There, it's settled. <laughs> Dan is just like, I need to, I need to get out of so my self-driven wrong. car and punch somebody. <laughs> for, for Word docs, that's fine. I thought if, that, if it was even a coding context, oh my goodness. It, no is, a, it is in a coding Basically, context, though. That's that's the thing. Like, I mean, it's Bill Gates. It's an AMA. Like, there's, they were not asking about Word documents, and he knows that. <laughs> um, and, and one of the comments later on was, watch the meltdown at slash programming. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I don't know, though. Like, I don't know. I'm I'm actually kind of mixed on this whole thing. Like, I've heard about, like, smart spaces, you know, where it works like tabs. 
But um, I mean, how do you? Oh man, I should. I'm just. I'm just gonna move on. I'm not even gonna. I'm not gonna dive into this because I'd rather talk about Blazer, honestly. <laughs> so let's not get into tangential spaces. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so to the reason that we actually have you guys on here, um, you know, so like I mentioned, there's there's a whole bunch of hype and excitement around uh, around Blazer. So like, let's just start at like, what is it? What is Blazer? Mm-hmm. Well, Blazer is bringing .NET to the web. You can have .NET code run natively in the browser with no plugins, no code transpilation, just using open web standards. Uh, Blazor is specifically, a, it's an it's a experimental uh, web framework that we've built using .NET that uses C Sharp, Razor, HTML, CSS, uh, and it runs in the browser via WebAssembly. Mm-hmm. Magic. So, so, <laughs> so other than WebAssembly, you know, wh- what did it actually take to get this working? I mean, it sounds like even even with WebAssembly, it's going to take a little bit of effort here. Yeah. It takes one very knowledgeable and capable dev who uh, <laughs> had a mission <laughs> and uh, had all the right knowledge and the right. I, I mean, you can't. Um, though dismiss the, the importance of the fact that this, the, the technology suddenly were available. Like the fact that WebAssembly is now here is what really enabled this yeah. to happen in, in a way that you could actually now uh, you know, use for, for production applications going forward. Like WebAssembly is just changing what the web means. And it's not, it's not just .NET, like Rust has WebAssembly support, Go, there's, there's projects oh, okay. in the Java world. Like Makes all sense. these languages and platforms are taking advantage of this new format WebAssembly, so they can get you know any code now running running in the blou- the browser. Um, but how did we get that all to come together? Well, that's that's all, Steve. Steve, you wanna you can tell your story. He's 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 the the dad, the father of, of Blazor. So, um, okay, so back in uh, about a year ago, um, when I had some conversations with some people about could we possibly do .NET in the browser with WebAssembly, and the, the general consensus was. Um, probably not because there is no way of um, compiling .NET to WebAssembly. Um, I went on a little sort of fishing expedition to see if I could find some way of doing it, however obscure. Um, and I came across this little .NET runtime called .NET Anywhere. So it's not it's not the regular .NET framework. It's not Core CLR, Core RT, or Mono, or, or any other recognizable .NET runtime. But it was rather this. Um, little open source project created by one guy called Chris Bacon, who um, wrote only about 100 C files or something. And it was enough to actually load and execute .NET assemblies uh, on whatever platform you compile it to. Now, he did this about six years ago. So that's a long, long time before the advent wow. of WebAssembly. And his target scenario was things like running .NET on embedded devices or just running it on Linux, but without having to use mono at that time or, you know, just running it anywhere, hence the name, .NET Anywhere, just comp- C code, you compile it to any platform, you run your .NET assemblies. Um, and because it was so portable, it was really easy, like literally probably less than an hour's work to make a couple of tiny tweaks to it so that it compiled correctly through the WebAssembly compilation toolchain. And so that meant that uh, I then had a WebAssembly file that could load and execute .NET assemblies. And that's really the the core starting point. Um, so it's really just a matter of, you know, normal coding from there on to build up an entire web framework and have it work inside a browser. Yeah. So that's 
uh, how we built the original prototype about a year ago. Um, but since then, we have tried to make it much more production ready. And the biggest piece we needed for that was a proper .NET runtime. So as much as .NET Anywhere is a really impressive technical accomplishment for one person to have written in, in such a small amount of code, it was not really complete enough for somebody to go and build a production application on. There were a lot of things that it didn't do completely or correctly. For example, it didn't really have any proper reflection support. And obviously, mm. you're going to need that by the time you're building real applications. Uh, and there were lots of other edge cases that it didn't deal with correctly as well. So um, we got some very good news. When was it, Dan, that Mono told us that they were going to target WebAssembly? Oh, they, uh, I mean, it was not that long afterwards. Like they have their, uh, they blogged it. Uh, Hello, WebAssembly was the the blog post on their thing. Yeah, that was in August of, uh, of last year. Yeah, okay, right. So the Mono uh, team, uh, in case any listeners are not, aware. Uh, the Mono um, platform is Microsoft's standard support at .NET runtime for client scenarios. So uh, that's the .NET runtime that you're using uh, if you're doing um, uh, iOS or Android programming through uh, through Xamarin. Uh, it's also the runtime that's used for Unity, which is like the biggest game engine by an enormous Because it margin. was uh, Xamarin who, who had Mono and then we purchased Xamarin and got Mono. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's correct. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So it's part of the whole Microsoft family, corporation, whatever you want to call it. It is a corporation. So um, that is, it's not, some people think, oh, it's using Mono, but when will it use real.net? Well, they're wrong. Stop saying that because Mono <laughs> is real.net. <laughs> I love it. It's supported. It's the standard. Like it's not, it's not some sort of intermediate step or anything like that. Yeah, and it's it not is, some like unsupported thing. thing. Like it's it's yeah. here now. It's rejoined the family. So <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, so anyway, when uh, the Mono team said they were going to target WebAssembly, that was great news for us because that gave us a, a real uh, direction to follow to to have a proper supported production grade .NET runtime, and we were able to move over to that in about October uh, with our initial prototype, and and that was really easy to port what we had over to that. Um, so now what we've got is a .NET runtime that supports .NET Standard 2, and it runs the considerable majority of uh, NuGet packages that you can find out in the wild. The only things that it won't run are things that rely on APIs that don't make sense in a browser. So for example, if you try to do file IO, yeah. well, or like that serial port access. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Windows registry access, whatever. It's, it's all going to, that stuff will throw a platform not supported, but everything else just going to work. Uh, and it does, and it keeps surprising me out by how much of it, you know, really just works when you throw something at it. Okay. Um, so um, in December or January, we got this go-ahead to start an experimental project where we would see if we could make a real thing out of this that people would actually want to use and would be uh, production-ready. Um, so that that's the um, that's what we're doing at the moment. We're in the middle of this phase of uh, trying to build this. Uh, it's not yet a committed product. But uh, we are hoping that people are going to really like what we are doing. And then we're going to evaluate this after a little while and, and see whether or not uh, this is going to be a real thing. Okay. So I, I hate asking this next question, but I know that this is the question that everybody has to ask, which is, you know, is this silver light all over again? <laughs> you know, there's, there's a, I think there's a few questions in that, in that question. Yeah. So what, first of all, there are a lot of similarities between Blazor and Silverlight. So the, mm -hmm. I think the question is fair. Yeah. Um, I mean, Silverlight was fundamentally a, 
from a technology perspective, a, a different model. It's a plugin. It had its mm -hmm. own rendering stack. You know, XAML based. We, we're not trying to do those things. It was like Blazor. it was like circumventing standards. In in I mean, in, in hindsight, that's basically what it was doing, right? I, like HTML is not cool. Like, we'll, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we'll extend it and do our own thing. Yeah, and 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 honestly, there were a lot of people that loved that model, and and there's a lot of the same reasons that that appealed. Uh, um, there are reasons why Blazor appeals. Like I'm a I'm a .NET developer. I know C sharp. I know how to use Visual Studio. I want to use those same skills to do client side development uh, for my web apps in in the in the browser. And Blazor will give you that. But instead of requiring a plugin uh, and a different UI stack, we're just going to use these the open web standards. It's uh, based on WebAssembly, HTML, CSS. We're really trying to target uh, that broad set of web developers uh, all up. So you're not going to get XAML with with uh, uh, with with Blazor. That said, um, it doesn't mean it doesn't make sense. There are actually uh, I was going to say, was it Frank Krieger is over there? Like yeah. <laughs> he actually has <laughs> yeah. it working. So <laughs> and I I, I think he the, he's been talking with the Xamarin folks as well. Um, it's actually the same the same runtime that we're using for Blazor. You know the the mono WebAssembly based runtime he's using in in the the Wii project, mm -hmm. and he's working on you know getting getting XAML working, which is great. And there's a set of developers that it appeals to. Um, that's a different audience than really yeah. what we're trying to target with with Blazor. I think though the another reason people ask about Serverlight though is like is uh how long is it going to live? Like when <laughs> well, is this really going to survive for for the long term? And you know I. I I wish I had a perfect crystal ball to predict that. I, I can tell you that that my goal is to make Blazor, you know, the best web development, uh, full stack web development story that we can make, and have it be supported for a long, long, long time. That's about what we can say. That that is the intent, and we we are, we are still in this experimental phase, in part because we want to make sure that you know we're we're going incrementally, you know, in iterations, so that we we make sure we've identified any potential blocking issues and that will hit us down the road in the long term, so that we don't start out with something, promise a product, and then yeah. later say, ah, well, you know, we said we were going to do that, but now we're not. Yeah. Um, that's one of the reasons why we're starting a little bit slower, a little bit more conservative. Uh, but the goal is to have something that you can use for a good long time. Yeah, because I think there were two key things in there. One of them being that it it's writing to a standard. So, I mean, you're not – it's not a plug-in. You're not modifying anything that you really shouldn't. There's nothing, like, super unnatural about it. It is just plugging into that standard WebAssembly. Um, and then the other is um, – yeah, I mean, yeah, Silverlight, the, there was this whole issue – I mean, really, like, the, the, com the community – uh, you know, or I should say the, the public at large, like sort of abandon it, which caused this effect. Right. And, and in this case, like there's, that really can't happen because as a, as a consumer, like, I don't even know what's going on. Like I've browsed like the blazer samples and they just work. Like I, you know, mm -hmm. I even view source and like, it's even kind of hard to see that, that there's something that's, you know, not per, not just regular JavaScript going on there. So I think it's totally different from that perspective. It's it's also like we're being open source from the beginning. Yeah. Like the Blazor repo is on GitHub. It's in the ASP.NET org. You can see the code now. Like that code is there. Um, Silverlight, you know, people wanted it to be open source for a while, but never really uh, was was made open source. So there's some longevity that you can get just because the source code is available. I think also because of the nature of WebAssembly, whether we do this or not, like the ecosystem is is going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Like, like you can't really prevent it. Like the standard is there, the technology is available. You know, if for whatever business reason we decide to go a different direction uh, at, at Microsoft, well, the tech 
it's it's, yeah. it's standardized. It's a thing that, that can be done and other other platforms will do it as well. Don't wait for users to report problems. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications, supports all major programming languages and platforms, and integrates with your current development workflow tools too. There's a free 14-day trial, and it takes minutes to implement. So start resolving issues in your application and check it out today at raygun.com. Uh, WebAssembly, I, I just don't know the answer to this. Is it supported on mobile platforms? Yes. Yes, okay. it is. Okay, awesome. So you had, were kind of leading into what I was kind of thinking already. You know, you know what, what's stopping Google doing this with like Go or Rust or, or you know, PHP or, you know, any of these other languages? Are, you know, can they all do the same thing that what you have done with Blazor? Or is there something that made this maybe a little bit more easier for you guys to accomplish? Oh, they, they already are. Like Rust already has uh, WebAssembly as a compilation target. They are full in actually on this story. They've been blogging about it. Uh, I think uh, the Go folks recently announced their, their support as well, that they're working on uh, being able to take Go code and, and target it directly at WebAssembly. Um, we're doing something a, a little bit different in that we're bringing actually the, the runtime into play. Like we're... Uh, at least right now, we're not taking all of your C-sharp code and compiling all of the C-sharp directly to WebAssembly. The only piece of WebAssembly code that's actually in play for a Blazor app right now is the, the mono runtime. Everything else is actually just normal .NET DLLs. Um, the, that said, the mono folks do have a, an ahead-of-time compilation story that they are working on where you can just take the whole app and compile it to WebAssembly. And that may have different you know, performance characteristics and so forth that we'll want to take advantage of. Uh, maybe that's something you do on the Publish step, right? Like you develop with just the, the .NET IL and it's fast and iterative and then you do a more lengthy compilation step to get everything to be WebAssembly uh, once you go to publish to production. We don't know yet. We're, those are things that we're, we're working, working through during this, this, this phase. Okay. And then like I said, I, you know, I've looked at the samples and one thing that I don't quite understand is like how does this interop with uh, like JavaScript and the DOM and because you know, I have all these things sort of piled in there together. How do I talk between them? What can talk to what? Okay. Well, um, WebAssembly itself has got um, mechanisms for making calls into JavaScript, and there are mechanisms for calling from JavaScript into WebAssembly, as, you, as you'd expect. Mm -hmm. So what we've done is we have uh, put a uh, some nice .NET APIs around that on the .NET side. So if you want to call from your C-sharp code into some JavaScript, there's a mechanism for saying that you want to make a call. It's just a static method that's part of the Blazor package, and you can pass whatever parameters you want to that. As long as they're JSON serializable, that's that's fine. Uh, and then on the JavaScript side, you declare a function uh, with a matching name, and that's the function that the Blazor runtime is going to pass the execution onto. And then we'll deal with things like getting return values back and marshalling all the data uh, across the wire. So uh, that's pretty straightforward. Likewise, if you want to call .NET code from JavaScript, there's a set of Blazor APIs for that, which are uh, themselves in JavaScript. So you can call those from null JavaScript code. Or uh, Basically, in summary, you can do it. And we have provided APIs for that. Um, does that answer your question? or That's part of it. Then the other thing was like interacting with the DOM. I mean, can I, in my .NET yeah. code, like interact with the DOM somehow? Yeah, okay. So 
strictly speaking, the answer to that is yes, you can, because you can use the JavaScript interrupt APIs to do anything you want. So you could make uh, a JavaScript API called set inner HTML or something like that, uh, which would take like a CSS selector and some HTML string, and then the implementation would just you know, find that element and set the HTML on it. And then you could call that from your .NET code if you wanted to. And that would mean that you're just, you know, shoving stuff into the DOM straight from C Sharp. So you can. However, part of our objective with Blazor is to provide an, a much nicer, higher level programming model. Uh, so you wouldn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we are doing in Blazor is allowing you to define components in Razor. So Razor being the the same syntax that ASP.NET has used for many years as a way of combining HTML and C-sharp code and allowing you to define components in uh, with files of that kind. And these components are uh, similar to the sort of components that you would build with React or Vue or Angular. So they encapsulate a certain bit of your application. They've got their uh, ability to render to HTML. They can deal with managing their own state. They can fetch data. Uh, you can combine them, nest them, compose them, whatever you want. And we deal with the rendering part of it for you. So you write your HTML in Razor and it gets into the UI. And as for how that actually happens, that's not your problem. That's our problem. And <laughs> we we make it very fast. You know, we do all the necessary incremental rendering and, and diffing against previous versions and updating just the right parts of the DOM, all that stuff. So there's the minimum amount of overhead going on, but the developer doesn't have to care about that. That's very cool. And then if you have a server application that's written in .NET and I am running .NET code in the browser and I start to make calls over there, like what, is, what does that look like? Because obviously I can just get back like the raw data, but is there a way to sort of, you know, whenever I get that data back, have it, you know, in the same type? Can I like share those types between the client and server? What does that look like? Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, one of our project templates We've got a couple of different project templates. One is a standalone, which is just a pure Blazor client app. But the other one is a an example of, um, well, it's a good starting point if you want to host a Blazor application on an ASP.NET server. And in that project, uh, it's an entire, well, actually, it's a solution template. So when you create your solution, you have a server project, a client project, and a shared project. And the shared project is just a standard .NET class library. And the expectation is that you put your domain classes in there. So, you know, the things that represent customers or sales or flights or whatever other business domain that you're operating in. And those same classes are available to both the server project and client project just via normal project references. That's awesome. So yeah, you don't have to define things in more than one place and serialization and deserialization is almost transparent. That's cool. Well, so the serialization then, is it using JSON or is it like binary or, okay. So it's just JSON over the wire, but like, like you said, you could use other serialization formats if you wanted to, but I think, Almost every web developer is going to think JSON is the natural starting point. Yeah, especially for just like, you know, watching what's going on. Yeah. Um, and then then that sort of solves the problem, the problem of IntelliSense and the client then too, because since it's the same type, you get the full IntelliSense on those uh, those objects. So that's Yeah, sure cool. you do. Yeah. And okay. you can share bits of logic as well. So if you've got things like properties that compute stuff from other fields, then... You know, it just works the same on the client as it does on the server. Ooh, so that's that's really interesting for like validation, right? Yeah, exactly. That's oh, that's cool. Yeah, because you just literally run the same validation code. Yep. So another scenario where you might want to use something other than JSON is like uh, like when you're using real uh, real time framework like SignalR. 
Um, like one of the things we're working on is getting, yeah, get the, we're getting the, the signal R client, the .NET client yep. to, to work in a blazer application. So you can have a real time connection to the backend and have all the strong typing of the signal R client working within the browser and under the covers, that's not using JSON typically. Like in my, I think in the ASMIC core implementation, they're, they're taking advantage of things like message pack and binary formats and those types of things. Yep. But at the end of the day, all you see is strongly typed C sharp objects, uh, with with lovely IntelliSense. Awesome, love it. Yeah, I know this is still in a, you know in an experimental mode right now. But you had talked about you know the different ways to create these these new project types. But uh, is there any story right now if I want to start playing with integrating this into an existing application that I have? Well, um, depends what you want to do, really. So um, if you, imagine you've got some existing solutions. I'm converting everything got, right now. <laughs> um, let's imagine you've got some existing solution that's got an ASP.NET Core backend that serves up JSON over various API endpoints. You can just go like add new project into that solution, choose Blazor standalone client app, and then... Um, add a reference to that from your server project and your server project can just start serving that client application. So you can certainly add an entirely new UI with Blazor into your application. If you wanted to do something where you somehow merged a Blazor UI with an existing uh, server-generated HTML UI with ASP.NET MVC or Razor Pages or something, you would be a little bit more on your own with that right now. That's not a scenario that we focused on. I don't think that's going to be ultimately as popular a scenario. I'm sure there's some way of doing it, but really we'd focus more on like create a pure Blazor application right now. Okay. And then you mentioned, uh, you were talking about the binding earlier and how it uses Razor. So how, how do you, um, like, what does that actually look like? I mean, is it literally just the same like binding syntax then? I mean, you have like your, you, you sort of have your, client side controller almost and it just gets bound to the view um i would be i would refrain i should from say client side the... model i guess i would say sorry not, be, it's not a components we have yeah. a, you have components in the yeah in that's the what you're talking about the components okay okay yeah okay also i wouldn't let's back away from the word binding for a minute because okay. that <laughs> means a lot of things to a lot of different people yeah um so the simplest way of creating a, Razor, a Blazor component is literally as a Razor CSHTML file. Um, and the simplest Blazor component is literally an empty file, and it does nothing. But, you know, anything that you type into there is markup that it's going to render. And then if you create a, an at functions block, you can put some C-sharp code in there. Mm -hmm. And then inside the HTML, you can use the at symbol and start referencing stuff from your C-sharp code. Um, so you can just sort of build it up syntactically like that. And so, yes, to answer your question, it is literally standard Razor. Um, that said, there are some Razor features that are not applicable on the client or where we've chosen to do things mm -hmm. slightly differently. Or, in fact, there's even more cases where we've added new concepts that wouldn't have existed um, before. So, for example, um, we've just integrated in the last couple of days routing, as I say, or routing, as most of your listeners <laughs> say, um, into... Um, these Blazor components. So at the top of it, you can say app page, and then you write out a URL. And that becomes the URL that that particular component can be reached upon. Now, that's a new way of doing routing. Um, it doesn't, that's not how it works in MVC or in um, Razor web pages. Mm -hmm. um, 
but you know it's a really natural fit in blazers so we, we are willing to do things a little bit differently but we are we're trying to strike a balance between keeping it familiar and yet not sort of doing stuff in an unnatural way just for the sake of consistency if it if it helps when you when you think about defining a blazer component like you're really just defining a class like a, a blazer component is just a class mm-hmm. uh, that implements a particular i component interface under the covers um, but that's kind of hidden to you for the most part what you're worrying about is well i have some markup that i want the this class to be able to spit out uh, to render into the virtual DOM, and that's what you're defining in the HTML tags in your CSHTML file. But then this is just a normal class as well, so we can have properties and methods, and you can define those in line in the CSHTML file, or you can define them in a code behind file. And then in your Razor syntax, you can use the normal at Sint, uh, syntax, a little at symbol, and then you start writing uh, C sharp. And IntelliSense there will then show you like what are all the properties on this component class, what are the methods on this component class. So you can do things like like you can have a button, and you can say on click. But when you when you click this button, I want you to call this C sharp method that I've defined on this same class. And you get, one of the really nice things about Blazor and C Sharp is we can really enable just a fantastic editor experience, like give you comp- all these completions and, and tooling yeah. and IntelliSense over the structure of that class, because it's just a normal C Sharp class. Uh, similarly, if you had like an input that's just a text box and you want to bind the value of that text box to some property on the component so that you can use it in code. You can say bind and then specify the property name and that will then bind the value of the of the input to that particular property. And those are all things that again have IntelliSense and tooling around them. So that's that's how that part of the, the system works. That is super cool. So you know I was talking about before having like client server validation, but what what if you take that one step further? I mean can you literally have um an application that runs client side or server side. I mean, I, I don't, I haven't really thought through the question, but you know, yeah. like, is that a thing? Like, can, cause you know, one of the issues with um, a lot of these frameworks like angular is that, you know, they're hundred percent client side. And I think some of the search engines, I know there's some workarounds to like make these things work, but can I literally, like if somebody comes to my site and maybe they have like JavaScript disabled, I don't know. And then it, it goes um, server side. I guess it's different because then the, there's no binding. So I guess I'm sort of answering myself, but I don't know. You have, you have a better answer to that. <laughs> well, I think I think that's that starts. There, there's a there's a feature that I think Angular and, and React frameworks do do have as well. It's it's, mm-hmm. a, it's where you do basically pre-render on on the server, yeah. where you basically run the Angular app on the server to generate the the HTML structure that you send down to the client really really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe that's the only thing they see because they can't run JavaScript if if that were the case. Mm-hmm. Um, as a as a way to optimize the site, and we do plan to do. Uh, have have a, the same feature in, in Blazor apps as well, the ability to pre-render. Um, oh, cool. That's it. I mean, pre-rendering, it's kind of a specialized scenario. It's a very particular yeah. optimization. It may not be for, for everyone, but it is something we do plan to support. And as much as possible, we want the programming model that we enable for Blazor to be consistent with things that, that you that you use and that you know when doing server-side development with like ASP.NET Core. That's, you know, that's one of the reasons why we're using Razor and CSHTML and, mm-hmm. and these type of syntaxes that uh, people have some familiar, familiarity with. All right, I'm looking at the uh, Blazor project on GitHub right now, and I can see that uh, the latest commit was just nine hours ago uh, by Steve himself. So uh, <laughs> obviously, this is this is pretty active. Uh, is there is there and you know out in the public, is there anything on the roadmap that you guys would like to talk about? 
well, we are coming up here really soon and having our first preview release of Blazor. Uh, the 0.1 released. Uh, this will be our first alpha. Uh, some bits for people to try out. And you'll be able to download and install a V6 into Visual Studio, file new project, your, your first Blazor app, uh, and away you go. And uh, we can't wait to hear what people's feedback is on that. Um, you also can do it from the command line. Like if, all, if you're on a, a Mac or you just prefer operating with Visual Studio Code and the command line, we have uh, .NET uh, CLI templates like .NET New Blazor. You can do that from the command oh, line and cool. get exactly the same templates. Uh, that will work as well. So yeah, we're pretty excited. We're pretty pumped about this first release. It is the first release, so there, you know, there's <laughs> there's a lot more to come. There's more features that we plan to add, but there's quite a bit there already. You can do quite quite a lot, and uh, we've already seen some really neat things that that people have um, done with even the nightly builds of of Blazor. If you really want to get cutting edge, you're welcome to also just grab our nightly builds of the V6 and and try those out. You know, mileage may vary at any given moment. Um, but uh, yeah, the the first official preview uh, is coming out uh, any 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 minute now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's really cool because you know I I um I do a lot of uh, Node stuff and and recently you know I, I've done a lot of client work and I've done you know Angular and uh, I've done a little bit of Vue.js and of course you know there's like a, a flavor of the month with with those types of things and I I try to keep up as as best as I can. And uh, I needed to do some server side stuff, so I used Express, and then I had to uh, I had to bring in a templating engine, and they present you with it has to be at least thirty options. <laughs> um, it's just really tough to like figure out like which templating engine am I supposed to use. Uh, so I pick one and I used it, but it worked totally different than all the client side libraries. So it feels like you know I guess I'd have to look at this a little bit more, but it really feels to me like there's a lot more parity because. In .NET, um, while you still have like as much choice as you want, there are generally like particular technologies that a lot of people rally around. I mean, there's obviously the code itself, which is what it. I mean, it's the same. It's the same everywhere. Uh, the capabilities obviously change a little bit, um, but then there's you know, like you said, I mean, you're using Razor and you're just building components out of Razor, and I think I think that's pretty exciting because it's it's something that I think a lot of people are going to rally around. And just the number of technologies that I have to learn is uh, is a lot shorter, and I and I I feel like finding answers and things like that is going to be a lot easier. Yeah, I I, I think we hope to do a, a number of things by introducing .NET for client side development. Mm -hmm. You know, one of them is just make it make it easier to get started. Like when you want to yeah. create a Blazor app. File new project, run it. You're you're set to go. Like the build system is set up, the the the, the project is set up. It runs. That that we want to make it super easy to get going. We want to give you a platform that feels stable and consistent. Like it's not going to change dramatically under the under your feet while you're trying to, exactly. to develop. I mean, we have .NET standard, we have MS Build for our, our build engine. Those things are mature. They've been around for a long time. They're feature rich, and they're not going anywhere. They're not just going to break underneath you. Uh, and then at the same time, you get to take advantage of things like the tooling and the languages uh, and using .NET on the back end. If you're mm -hmm. using .NET Core on the back end, you know, our, our perf numbers right now are looking pretty spectacular. In 2.1, yeah. they're, they're just going to knock people's socks off. So you, yeah. you get a fast, scalable, secure back end to go, to go with it. Uh, and we hope that will appeal to, to a fair number of web devs. I think it will. I think it will. This is, this is, this is awesome. I mean, it's just, just such a cool environment. Um, is there anything else that you want to talk about that we missed? Uh, you know, just 
when we when the bits go out, keep in mind it is experimental. <laughs> so don't go try and use this for your nope, next production. I'm going to ship, ship it. Yeah. Ship <laughs> 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 it. Don't listen to Dan. But, it's ready to go. <laughs> but please, please try it out and and let us know what you think. Like like try out the component model. Like we we want to build up a, a you know a great ecosystem of, of of shareable components that are just NuGet packages that you can add. Um, experiment with the JavaScript interop. Um, we had folks, you mentioned the MVP summit. We had folks there, you know, building NuGet packages that gave you access to like local storage, uh, mm -hmm. access to the, uh, like the ambient light sensor. One guy had like a little light meter that he built in Blazor and C Sharp using just the, the browser cool. APIs. That was cool stuff. So try out that stuff. Uh, let us know what you think and how we can make it better. File issues on GitHub. Uh, if you want to talk with us, also we we hang out on Gitter, um, the the Blazor Gitter, and we'd we'd love to to chit chat on scenarios that maybe you're thinking about or things that you'd like to see Blazor do. Uh, we're happy to hear all that stuff. That that is that is the point of this phase, is so we can hear yeah. that kind of feedback. Very cool stuff. Very cool stuff. Okay, so let's move on to the Azure pick of the week, which is actually there's kind of two pieces of this. Uh, but basically, uh, in preview right now is uh, low priority VMs on scale sets. But the other half of this is just the fact that there are low priority VMs. So if you get a low priority VM, a lot of the SKUs have this available where you can basically get a VM that can be preempted. Um, you know, so basically you're using the VM and then you can't use it anymore. But if you are able to deal with that, if you have an application that's pretty fault tolerant. Um, let's say it's doing like batch stuff or, or whatever. And I know this is integrated with Azure batch as well. Uh, you can use those VMs and there's significant savings. I don't think I have the pricing calculator up anymore. Uh, but I think it was like, it was almost like a 10th of the cost. Um, so you can get VMs ridiculously cheap. So if you need to do, like I said, like batch processing, they're really great for that, but they're now integrated. There's an option to integrate those with, uh, with scale sets as well. There's a flag for that. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So I encourage everybody to check that out. And Carl, what do you have for the dev tip of the week? Uh, so last year at Build, at Build 2017, uh, uh, Microsoft announced Adaptive Cards. And this is a, a JSON schema format that allows you to, uh, you know, just describe some content that you want that will always look native on whatever platform it's being rendered on. So you, you essentially describe yep. it and it, it just looks native. So on iOS, it looks like iOS on Android. It looks like that. Um, but my pick of the week this week is a react renderer for adaptive cards. And one of the reasons why I picked this is last month in February, adaptive cards officially hit the 1.0 milestone. And already there is a pretty solid looking react renderer for this. So I'm pretty excited to see uh, where this technology goes. Very cool. Very cool. And I was going to say, I don't even know where the game is, so I can't even take it out. So I apologize. Yeah, everybody. You, yeah you switched offices. <laughs> I was, Anybody I was watching the, yeah, the video? They just keep moving us, and they're going to like bulldoze this building anyway. So that's why you <laughs> see I have like nothing in here. Uh, so we'll have to skip the uh, fun game that we play. Um, but uh, Dan, where can uh, where can people find you online? So if you want to reach me on Twitter, I'm at DanRoth27. I'm the 27th DanRoth. Perfect. <laughs> and Steve, where can people find you? On Twitter, I am Stephen Sanderson. That's Stephen with an N. Okay. Don't tweet at the Steve Sanderson because that is a different software developer. <laughs> oh, he's it also a developer. Is. It is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pretty cool. Okay, so Carl, uh, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. So Dan and Steve, thank you so much for coming on here and talking to us about this. This is... 
such a cool technology that uh, I can't wait to try out. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's been a pleasure.